generations to come. Good afternoon. It's November 22nd. It's 1255 in the afternoon. I'm Bill Finley, and this is this week's edition of the TDN Writers Room, brought to you by Keeneland. Joined by Zoe Cadman and Randy Moss. Well, the big story last week, and uh, it was a bombshell. Uh, a appeals court out of the Southern, not of the Southern District, out of um, Texas, actually. No, actually, it was New Orleans, wasn't it? But anyways, the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals ruled that HISA was unconstitutional. And this is why they said it uh, was because it delegates unsupervised government power to a private entity, which uh, is a violation of the private non-delegation doctrine. What putting that into plain language, what it means is that there was not enough authority given to the Federal Trade Commission and that basically HISA, which is a non-governmental agency, was in charge. Where does that leave us? That's anyone's guess. It's chaos right now. Randy Moss, where what do we make of things right now? Anyone who has followed the sport of thoroughbred racing closely over the last three or four decades, quite frankly, is not surprised at all that it is turned into a complete and utter mess and complete and utter chaos uh, because that's what the sport does to itself. It shoots itself in the foot at every opportunity available. We've seen it over and over and over again, especially when it comes to areas that can be politicized, like uh, like I said, has turned out to be. Now we're in a situation where, as you pointed out, uh, the unconstitutionality centers around uh, the FTC not having enough oversight. So horsemen's groups like the National HBPA didn't like it because of what they believe are the adverse effects on the sport. And the way to correct that in HISA, apparently, is to give the Federal Trade Commission more oversight in making rules instead of people that actually know something about the sport. So this whole thing has just become a, a, a tornado of unintended consequences. I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to hear from Ed Martin a little bit later uh, from the ARCI. I'm not sure he knows exactly what's going to happen. But one thing we do know for sure is that right now it is a complete mess. Absolute cluster, basically. And basically, horse racing is between a rock and a hard place, I think. Do you allow the FTC to completely take over or can you please yourself? And we've proven time and time again that horse racing apparently cannot and do need some oversight. But I, I just don't know how they're going to fix it. I mean, it's a shame. It's a damn shame for a lot of the people that wanted Heiser to go through because the majority of states did push Heiser through and then there was some pushback. And I honestly don't think that a lot of the states that had the pushback going forward for them actually even thought it was going to come to fruition. They basically won and weren't expecting it. So it is just an absolute mess. Hopefully Ed can bring some light to it a little bit later. So here are what the next possible steps are for Heiser. There's basically three. Now, remember, they lost a court case uh, from the Fifth Circuit, but it was only before a panel of three judges. They can go back to the court and ask for what's an end bank hearing, which means it would then be uh, it would the, the hearing, the trial would start all over again and would be before the full court of the Fifth Circuit. That's number one. Number two, they can try to take the case to the Supreme Court of the United States and try to win at that level. Number three is they could go back to Congress and say, we've got some problems here. We have to rewrite the legislation so that the FTC does have more power 
and we will correct the wrongs that the judge in the uh, Fifth Circuit said were things that made this unconstitutional. And I don't think they can win. And again, you know, I'm not a lawyer, though. Sometimes, unfortunately, covering this sport, you need to be now. So we talk more about this kind of stuff than we do who's going to win the Kentucky Derby, it, it sounds like. And it gets very frustrating. But I don't think they can win on any of those three avenues. And here's why. Uh, first of all, it was an unanimous ruling by the three-person panel. If they agree to this end bank hearing, what are the chances are that the full court will override what the three-person panel already decided? That's number one. Number two, if they want to try to take it to the Supreme Court, what are the chances that the Supreme Court accepts the case? And if they do, look at the kind of Supreme Court that we have right now. It's very conservative. It believes in states' rights. It believes in in, in small government and lack of government uh uh, oversight into various things. I don't think if the Supreme Court takes it, they would ever win at the Supreme Court level. Then maybe the best option is then to go back to Congress. Mitch McConnell, uh, the House Minority Leader, not the House, but the Senate Minority Leader, who was instrumental in getting this uh, passed in the first place, still has a lot of clout. Uh, he could come in and do something. But we're going to, get to go into a uh, congressional year, two years, where there's going to be absolute chaos. I mean, they're going to be a lot more worried about Hunter Biden's laptop than they are about horse racing. So what are the chances that they actually tackle this and get it settled? So, Randy, you know, I hope I'm wrong because I am a Heisa fan. But at the end of the day, I think Heisa is going to go away. I think Heisa might be on life support right now. Uh, I totally agree with everything you said. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, there are one of the issues, I think, is that there are always in horse racing seem to be conflicting priorities when you get to something like this. Uh, the National HBPA seems to be focused more on uniform state to state medication regulations and LASIX, whether or not uh, LASIX is permitted or not and at what levels it's permitted or not. That seems to be a lot of the issue for the HBPA as well as funding. Right. Some of the prominent owners and trainers and breeders that signed on to HISA are more concerned, I think, about a level playing field in the sport. And I think that's what most horse players are concerned about, the people that actually pay the bills. I think we're concerned not so much about the 21 picograms of uh, of whatever it was. I forget now that was in Medina Spirit when he won the Kentucky Derby. We're more concerned about the Jorge Navarro, Jason Service type situations where the testing that has been given to racehorses now for decades is not catching what most people believe to be the true cheaters that are using substances that are evading the normal testing procedures. The way Navarro and Jason Service, whose case is yet to be adjudicated, were, were busted is through investigations that were funded by the Jockey Club. Okay, that's the way forward. That's what HISA was going to have included in its framework, but it's not cheap. Investigators don't work for free. Investigators cost a lot of money. So who pays for it? That seems to be, in my opinion, the primary issue right now. Do you ask horse players to pay for it? Well, the paramutual tax is already so high on horse players that many of them are either getting out of betting completely or they're switching their betting to offshore where they can get rebates. Okay, You can't really tax the horse players more. So the owners and trainers are left. And yet the owners complain that it's already a money losing situation to own racehorses. Now you're adding more of an onus on, on us, more of a financial burden. So who pays for it? 
it's just it's a big mess, conflicting priorities. Hopefully it'll get solved. But uh, I'm certainly not optimistic at this point. It, it feels like we take five steps forward and seven steps back every time we go through this. So uh, I, I don't have the answers. I wish I did. I mean, federal funding and federal oversight would be great. But right now, we're just all kicking each other in the shins. Yeah, we certainly are. But here's one of my problems with this. Um, at the end of the day, if I'm right and that Haiza is going to be uh, the plug is going to be pulled on it, you know, the National HPPA and the others that were the plaintiffs in this lawsuit will take a victory lap. They won. But here's my problem. To win means you're OK with the status quo. And I don't see how anybody can be OK with the status quo. And never have I heard from National HBPA or any of these other groups, okay, we don't like HISA, we'd like this instead. They just say, we don't like HISA. But what would you do? The status quo is where we got ourselves to in 2022, where Navarro is in jail, service is likely going to jail. And there's still hundreds of guys out there that are running horses every day that are cheating. We know that. Can't name names, but you know we all know who they are for the most part. And this sport has a huge integrity problem, and it's crippling to the sport. Haiza was not perfect, but it was, as Randy said, they were going to go into more of the investigative areas of trying to catch people. They're going to hire Five Stones Intelligence, which was played a major role in bringing down service in Navarro. They were going to make the game cleaner and safer and more uh, on the level. If Haiza goes away, we're right back to the status quo. And again, if, if, if Eric Hamelback or anybody else from the anti-Heiser group wants to come on this show and explain to say, Bill, you're, you're wrong. This is what we want to do. We don't like the status quo either. This is what we want going forward. I'd be glad to put him on this show. But to me, to be against Heiser is to be for the status quo. And I don't see how anybody can be for that, the kind of mess we're in in this sport right now. The Kilo November Horses of Racing Age sale was held last Thursday after a successful breeding stock sale and was highlighted by a $1 million juvenile coat by Into Mischief out of Gordet. A total of 161 horses were sold for an average of $68,000. We also look forward to the 2023 Keeneland January Horses of Racing Age sale, which begins on Monday, January the 9th. Bring your coats, guys. It'll be very, very chilly indeed. We'll be right back after these messages from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar, reminding us why, for the love of the horse, for generations to come. Spitestown. Bunning. Echo Town. It's Echo Town for Joe Talamo and Echo Town. Race the way, and Echo Town is drawing away in the stretch. Echo Town wins the Allen Jerkin Stakes. A sire line so prolific, it repeats itself. Echo Town. 
TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Cool More. Justify now has six first crop two-year-old stakes winners. You will stand for $100,000 in 2023. And guys, I'm not sure if you caught the Desi Arnaz stakes from Del Mar last weekend. Let's talk about Justique's last to first win. That was an extraordinarily brilliant effort for her. She's also a half-sister to Motown, who stands at Coolmore as well. Bill, Randy, Justine. Yeah, what, a, Justine. what an interesting horse. What an interesting horse this is. She broke her maiden at, and was so ultra impressive. I declared afterwards she was going to win not only the Chandelier Stakes, she was going to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Fillies. What does she do? She runs kind of a flat race in the Chandelier. I give up on her in the Desi Arnaz. And every time she zigs, I zag. And she not only won the race, she won it again with this just eye-catching, explosive move that she has. She's so far behind, and then she just runs by horses like they're standing still, then gets to the finish line first. Um, and look, I'm not going to say she's the next Zen Yacht. I'm not going to go anywhere near there. But trained by John Sheriffs, she's got that same kind of running style, where she looks hopelessly out of it, and then in the blink of an eye, she goes from last to third, and then to first. So, uh, Randy, I know in her first two starts, she didn't run particularly fast. Um, where does she stand up on the buyer scale right now? Uh, the Desi Arnaz, she got an 81 buyer speed figure, which is not going to blow anybody's socks off. But in the realm of the current crop of two-year-old fillies, which looks a little subpar, I think that 81 would put her uh, right in the hunt to win a, you know, a graded stakes race, maybe even a grade one stakes race in her next start. She's an exciting horse to follow. Uh, what's interesting to me about her is that when she broke her maiden July 31st, she broke slowly from the gate, dropped way, way, way back, circled the field with this massive move, the reasons why you liked her so much. And I think everyone thought, wow, if she doesn't break slowly from the gate, how good could this filly be? Well, as it turns out, that's her running style. In her next start, the Chandelier had gotten sick in between her career debut and the Chandelier. Sheriff said she'd missed about a week of training time. She was running on a Santa Anita surface that was uncommonly deep for Santa Anita. So in hindsight, Sheriff's believes that it was a perfect storm of factors that led to sort of a dull effort in the chandelier. The fact that she missed training time, the fact that she was going from a maiden race to a grade, a graded six in the chandelier, the fact that she was going from a five and a half furlong sprint to a mile and a sixteenth, and then the deeper racetrack, maybe she wasn't quite fit enough. So anyway, she didn't run as well. Now we see her again drop way, way back. That's just going to be her style, apparently. She's going to be like a Zenyatta. And so it's going to be interesting to see how she does going forward. The thing that Zenyatta had in her favor, she had that running style, right? But she was also running almost exclusively on synthetic racing surfaces that were kinder to that running style than a conventional dirt surface. Justique, if she sticks with this running style, is not going to have uh, that same advantage, Zoe. No, she's not. But she's also not going to get any dirt in her face because she's just so far back. Uh, Victor is adamant, Victor Espinosa, her jockey, that she will be better around two turns. She was a little flat in her two-turn debut in the Chandelier Stakes and for all the excuses that you already mentioned. I think she's just going to get better the further she goes. I've, a lot of people may say, oh, maybe she's just a one-turn come-from-behind sprinter now, but I don't think so. We've seen time and time again from horses trained by sheriffs that he likes to race them into action. If they have the ability to be brilliant, it's purely on their own merit. And I think she 
is does have a touch of brilliance to her, and we're just going to see her get better. If you watch her in the mornings, she's horrible to watch. Like Amy works her, the reins are flopping. She just go-ops along, and she could look like a $20,000 claimer galloping down the lane when she works in 102, but she puts it all together in the afternoon. And the thing that makes Victor a Hall of Fame rider is that he knows what he has underneath him. He's not going to rush her. She's going to let her get her feet underneath her and do what she does does best, which is finish her races. So I think the future is bright for her. And I'm really excited to see her. She is a cool filly to watch. Yeah, an exciting filly, and it will be interesting to see how she does going forward. Now, the Santa Anita Riding Colony talked about Victor Espinosa. Uh, frankly, uh, up till a couple of weeks ago, was pretty weak. Um, I, I don't think it stacked up, Zoe, to what we have in New York, or maybe not even what they have in Kentucky. But look what's happened. You have John Velasquez has come out to join them. Flavian Prada is back. Now, the big name, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this before, Frankie Dettori is going to come in from England and starting on December 26th, opening day at the Santa Anita meet, he is going to ride that full meet. And uh, boy, is that going to spice things up. The, he's also said that if he can pick up a decent Kentucky Derby mount, he might just stick around through the Kentucky Derby. So he wouldn't be going back to England until they're, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or maybe even a month or so into their racing season. The one question I have about that is that if he wants to pick up a Derby mount, he better be riding for Bob Baffert. And Bob Baffert has already got John Velasquez. He's already got Juan Hernandez. He already has Mike Smith. I don't know if, if DeTore can get into that barn or not. There's a line lined up at Baffert's uh, office door for jockey agents trying to get in there. But uh, he's an obviously a great rider. It's going to be an interesting chapter in his career. And I can't wait to see how he does out there. Uh, it's going to be very interesting because you mentioned Derby first Saturday in May. We all know about the John Gosden bust up between Dettori, Gosden wanting Frankie to be more serious and be there in the gallops and be there in the morning. But you know what else is the first Saturday in May is the 2000 guineas, the very same weekend. So Frankie has to make up his mind. Does he want to win a derby or does he want to win a guineas? So I think this is a very interesting situation that we'll see go forward with Frankie Dettori. As far as the jockey colony out here, I think it's great all these guys are coming. Perhaps they could bring us a few horses with them as well because we're going to have an awful lot of jockeys out here. Hopefully some of the trainers that are out here right now for the Del Mar meet will stick around for the ship and win at Santa Anita because it's a very lucrative program and get more horses to come here for the winter meet, which, hey, more horses, Frankie Dettori. I mean, what's better than that? We get sunshine too. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things about the Detori thing that interests me. Uh, first of all, he has hired as his agent, Ron Anderson, who is not only the preeminent jockey's agent in America right now, he's arguably the greatest jockey agent of all time. When you look at Ron Anderson's list of past riders and what he's done with him, it's just absolutely astounding. And so that's who we're gonna, that's who's going to be booking the mounts for Detori in California. And the second aspect of this is you have to ask yourself, why now? Why is Detori now for the first time shifting his tack for the winter months to Santa Anita and to America? One reason is that it is being facilitated by First Racing, who owns Gulfstream Park and owns Santa Anita as a part of a marketing plan to increase the visibility of racing at Santa Anita in the winter with Detori there, who's nothing if he's not camera friendly. And secondly, first racing controls the rights to international betting 
on Gulfstream and Santa Anita. With Frankie Dettori riding at Santa Anita, you would think it would have to increase the amount of betting revenue that's being accumulated overseas, in the UK in particular. So there are a lot of reasons why this is happening right now, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it all pans out. It's a very good move on First Racing's part to bring Frankie. He's got nothing to lose. I, I think he's won 43 races lifetime in the U.S. from 350-something mounts. His average per start in the U.S. is 256,000 or something close to that. So he's won a lot of big races over here. And I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing how he's going to match up with the likes of Pratt and Rispoli. We basically have a very, very international jockey Connolly here at Santa Anita. It'll be interesting because 43 wins, 40 of those coming on the turf course. We've seen time and time again, the turf racing is basically superseding dirt racing, especially out here in Southern California right now. And I'm looking forward to seeing this matchup between all those guys. The Lanes End Stallion of the Week is Game Winner, whose first foals were on display at the Keeneland November sale. Game Winner had 10 sell for an average of almost $140,000, including a colt that brought $280,000. Game Winner is a son of Candy Ride. He was a champion two-year-old. Of course, he won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile for Gary and Mary West and trainer Bob Baffert. And Game Winner stands for $30,000 this year at Lanes End. We'll be right back after this message from Lanes End. As a two-year-old, he was just phenomenal. I think that two-year-old form is so important, especially when they can take it to that championship level. And game winner, he brought it to that championship level. The Rebel Stakes, he still ran the most impressive race, just getting beat a nose by Omaha Beach. Candy Ride was a brilliant racehorse. He showed brilliance, and he throws brilliance. And game winner, you know, the minute he showed that brilliance, I knew right there we had something really special. The Green Group Guest of the Week is sponsored by The Green Group, an accounting and tax consulting advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred business. With over 500 clients in the racing industry, they have proven strategies to save you money. To learn more about The Green Group and those strategies, log on to www.greenco.com. And we welcome in now this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Ed Martin. He's the president and CEO of Association of Racing Commissioners International. Obviously, the big story last week was the Court of Appeals for the 5th District ruling that Haiza is unconstitutional. It's a mess. And Ed, we brought you and you're going to explain everything to us. And when we're all done, we're going to understand what is just an absolute unfathomable situation. But I guess from uh, the perspective of racing commissions, the first question I have for you, come January 1, when HISA was supposed to take over all the drug testing and the police, the enforcement of drug testing in the sport, do the racing commissions go with HISA rules? Do they go with their own rules? What are they supposed to do now that HISA is up in the air? Well, we've told everybody to talk to their lawyers, but somebody could say there's too many lawyers in this whole mix. Uh, what we've got is we've been told for almost two years now that the HISA Act was bulletproof in terms of its legality. And we found out last week that that's not true. Uh, so now we're in the great unknown. And we have a situation that HISS has been declared unconstitutional by a three-judge federal court appeals panel. Uh, Charlie Sheeler says it's not taking effect till, uh, who's the HISS chair, says it's not taking effect till early in January. 
that may be true, but what we're dealing with is we have to enforce rules. Now, as of January 1, under the federal law, HISA is re- totally responsible for enforcing the anti-doping and the drug rules. It's totally their deal. And many states have been preparing for that. Uh, some states are totally getting out of that space uh, and leaving the, uh, the test barn personnel, the hiring of them, the, the training of them, and so forth, totally to the, uh, the, the HIWU subsidiary of HISA. Uh, but we're in a situation where we have a sport that if the HISA rules apply on January 1st and somebody gets sanctioned for a drug violation or a doping violation uh, under the HISA rule, then if HISA is ultimately declared unconstitutional and invalid, then that violation goes away. It doesn't exist. The penalty goes away. And you've redistributed purses. So this has the potential to be an enormous chaotic situation. Um, HISA could could fix this themselves by going back to the FTC and saying, we're going to put off enforcement of our drug rules. And they could put it off six months and hopefully we'll get a, a final court answer. But it doesn't look like we're going to get a final determination of their constitutionality uh, anytime soon. So this is going to go into a great gray area. Uh, we saw the California Horse Racing Board has a contract with HISA to enforce their uh, racetrack safety rules. We know the crop rules. Uh, and there's been a number of jockeys across the country who have been sanctioned for HISA crop rule violations. Well, if they're unconstitutional, those violations really don't exist. So expect litigation there. Uh, this is a this this is a bit of a mess. And you know, telling us everything's okay and everything's going to be fine—that's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it right now. Well, Ed, you sound frustrated and understandably so. Um, we may not have enough time to cover all this, but what's your best guess now as to what is likely to transpire in the court system? Well, there's another court case. It's going to, a three-judge appellate panel was appointed uh, yesterday. I think they've got a hearing coming up uh, first week in December. Uh, it's anybody's guess as to how long it takes those three judges to make a determination. If they follow what the Fifth Circuit has done and declare HISA unconstitutional, then it's um, it, it's a real serious problem because then the only the only avenue for HISA is to uh, go to the Supreme Court, and that's always a, a roll of the dice. But I have to tell you, we've been told by people like Bennett Liebman uh, from the Albany Law School, who's spoken to various conferences about the Supreme Court, has become over the years uh, more friendly to states' rights. And uh, this uh, is a states' rights uh, issue. Uh, so, you know, really what has to happen, I think, if you want to get uniformity, you want to get a better program. I mean, we, the RCI has called for technical corrections uh, to this statute to put it together a little better. And one, and, and also in a way that's going to mitigate the, the, the enormous extra cost that uh, uh, looks like it's going to be imposed mostly on racetracks and, and horse owners and trainers. Um, 
it, it could be uh, that could be the impetus to put everybody back at the table. And we think that ought to be a cooperative effort. It shouldn't just be the people who supported Hissa. Hissa is a reality. I mean, there's a I think everybody's used to and supportive of the concept of having a central entity make the rules. It's just a question of how to do it. And, you know, the way they did the way they did Hissa, Randy, is unlike any other federal program. If the federal government wants you to do something a certain way, what the federal government usually does uh, is is put a carrot out there for the states. In other words, if you do it according to our standards, we'll give you 20 percent, 30 percent or whatever your cost is to, to do it our way. Uh, HISA didn't approach it that way. Uh, they, they built their whole separate organization. And uh, uh, perhaps that's a, a better way to do it. Uh, and have some level of accountability and 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 possibly um, you know the issue in the in the fifth circuit had to do with the fact that uh, there were no checks and balances on hissa and somebody told me uh, this morning that that uh, if you're appointed to the hissa board it's essentially an appointment for life you know i mean it's like being a supreme court judge <laughs> you know Another option is 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 doing is have the federal government do an interstate compact. Do you believe that the national HBPA would ever be supportive of a central authority making all the rules? I can't speak for them. I do. Uh, I do know. I, I think where most people are at, Randy, that I hear is everybody would like to figure a way to make all this work. In, including the HBPA, uh, but I'll let them speak for themselves. Whether it be the horsemen or the tracks, I think some of the tracks who were supportive of HISA, who are now facing rather large regulatory bills, are scratching their heads and saying, well, "We didn't expect that." And there are tracks that, and I'm not at liberty to say that are considering not simulcasting their signal to come out from under HISA. And there are states where the tracks in that state, some of them will simulcast, some of them won't. Uh, depends on their economic viability. And this was supposed to bring uniformity to the sport. I mean, it's it right now. It's kind of going in the other way. In in a, it, it's it, it's off the rails right now. Yeah, it definitely seems like there are lots of balls in the air and people juggling them and dropping them left, right, and center. Do you know? Of any petitions to perhaps rewrite the rules in Congress to try and get something going? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, I had asked for the opportunity in July to uh, speak to the HESA board, and I renewed that uh, request on a panel I was on in Saratoga with Lisa Lazarus and Rob Williams of the New York Gaming Commission. And did, but I, that, that, I've never had that opportunity. But I think the HESA board, there are things that they're doing and could be doing uh, that could uh, help the sport uh, if they only consider it. One of the things is let's assume HISA were to be were to sustain itself, and let's say it, it were to meet the needs of the Constitution. Um, they, 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 Congress created HISA in a spending bill that was over two trillion dollars, but they didn't put one penny in for horse racing. There is a supplemental appropriations bill moving in the lame duck session anticipated to come forward uh, uh, in the next few weeks, that's an opportunity to mitigate the cost of HISA. Now, the court ruling probably eliminates that opportunity, 
But I don't understand why HISA has not asked for federal money. I don't understand why we were the only people that came out and said, you need to put some federal money into this. You know, this this was this idea came from Congress and Congress funded all sorts of other stuff in that bill, but not a dime for horse racing. And you're in some cases, if you look at HISA's own documents as what the cost of HISA is on a per start basis. Uh, I was talking to a congressman from Maryland, depending on the track uh, his his uh, owners were entering their horses in. The, the per start cost for HISA is anywhere from. $313 to $450 every time the horse starts. And that's all horses. Every you know, so the tracks have flexibility as to how to pass those costs along, but there's there's things there's economies of scale that are uh, you know, and and I think that's part of the problem of locking yourself in a you know, behind closed doors and not having you know, any level of transparency. And this industry, I don't think, has really recognized the the, the, the loss of transparency and accountability. Well, the, the loss of accountability is what pretty much uh, was cited uh, in, in that court ruling. Uh, so it is what so it is, guess, and stay tuned. I guess the question that I have then is, how could this be have been avoided? You say that everybody, even the national HBPA, is generally – in favor of uniformity and, and a national regulating body. They just didn't like the way that this was going about. So how could this have been avoided? So we didn't get to the point we're at now. Well, I think the easiest thing to have done, and I don't want this to sound self-serving, but the easiest way to get to uniformity was for Congress to pass a one-line bill and say, you know, incorporate the ARCI model rules by reference. And if you want to simulcast the signal, everybody's got to operate under the same rules. Uh, I think there was a need to have a multi-state investigatory entity, and there was a need to expand the jurisdiction of the state racing commissions over the actual horse, which they did in HISA, but in our opinion, they didn't do it far enough. Um, those are things that could have helped the, helped, the, uh, helped the process and been a lot less costly. Uh, HISA was granted its own taxing authority. So... You know, they could have structured the program that way. Uh, they opted not to, which was totally within their right. Uh, I think a lot of people were were upset when uh, they couldn't work a deal with the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency uh, because I think uh, that had been sold as part of the, the, the HISA appeal along the way. Um, I've had very little contact with the, uh, the HIWU people, but... Uh, you know, you, you you hear different things, but uh, this is this is enormous. This is enormous what that bill did. And when we analyzed it after the bill passed, you know, we basically said, you know, what this bill does is it burns the house down to to redo the kitchen, and the kitchen needed to be redone, but you didn't need to burn the whole house down. Yeah, that's a good point. I've I've got one question. And this is moving forward to January 1st. You said that a lot of states basically have gotten rid of all of the people that were enforcing the rules. And I am supposed to take that over. So who is doing these menial tasks? Like who is the pea catcher? Who's the guy in the test barn? Who is in charge of that now? Well, right right now, those are the state racing commission employees. Right. Uh, and, 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 
my my guess is after January 1st, they will continue to be state racing commission employees because I think that when you really look at this, some rules are better than no rules or the potential for no rules. And I think you may see a lot of states move forward with in just continuing the existing state rules uh, where appeals are heard and brought forward and are sustained. You know, it's very, very rare for a state racing commission to be overturned on a drug case. I mean, we have prosecutors who have never in their career lost a racing drug case. Uh, so, you know, they, 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 they needed, they didn't need to replicate all of that. There was, there was better ways to, to put this together. But, you know, the guy, the guy running the, uh, the anti-doping committee is from the NFL and he's new to horse racing. And the NFL does not exactly have a transparent program. Uh, try to go to their website and find out anything about their anti-doping program, how many athletes are tested, how many are positive, what they find, and so forth. You, you can't really find that. You can't even find the rules online. But the uh, uh, this is a transition. I mean, you know, we've, we've kind of thrown up our hands and tried to help them and advise them and to say, you know, our only concern is we don't want this to turn into a mess. Well... <laughs> And, and they've got a hard job. Lisa Lazarus has been doing a really good job with the cards that she's been dealt. I mean, I really have a lot of respect for her. And they've got some good people in there. Um, but the, the bottom line is um, this is very much in doubt as to what's going to happen here. And we've, it's time to put all the politics in the industry aside, get everybody in a room, and try to figure out how to fix this or make it work. But in the in the absence of that, uh, you know, I, I, I think I think you're going to see a lot of states when they talk to their attorney generals and their general counsels come down to the conclusion that, you know, we don't want to be in a position where we've got an anti-doping program that has absolutely no teeth in it because it might be ruled unconstitutional. Len Martin, thanks so much for helping to clarify what is absolutely a big mess. Let's hope at the end of the day, this comes out in favor of a positive resolution for the sport, horse racing. That's what we're all rooting for. And thanks again. Thank, thank you, Bill. The Green Group Guest of the Week was brought to you by The Green Group, an accounting and tax consulting advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry. As this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Ed Martin will receive a free one-hour tax consultation. For more on The Green Group and their strategies, you can go to www.greenco.com. And we'll be right back after this message from The Green Group. Why do the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisor? We simply save them money and know how to make them more successful. Over the past 40 years, founder Leonard Green has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport. His in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Breads. Breed them. Raise them. 
race them. We all win. The TDN Riders Room is brought to you by the Kentucky Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders, the KTOB. Of course, Churchill Downs is going hot and heavy right now, not only with all the stakes races over the Thanksgiving holidays, and there are plenty of those, but check out the maiden special weight races at Churchill Downs. Three of them on Thanksgiving Day alone. Full fields, 8, 12, and 10. Two of those maiden special weight races have $120,000 purses. Remember when that was an attractive stakes race? And also one for $92,000. That maiden special weight race is restricted for horses that sold or are in aid for $50,000 or less. Check out the racing at Churchill Downs this weekend. Well, Randy, you just mentioned all the big races at Churchill Downs this weekend. There's a great one on Friday. It is the Clark, and the featured event is going to be highlighted by Rich Strike. Uh, it looks like he's in a cha- uh, position now where he can certainly win this race. Um, frankly, the race came up pretty weak. He's the only grade one winner in the entire field. Um, if he runs back to his race in the Breeders' Cup Classic from the numbers, uh, looks like he's going to be right in the mix. Um, West Willpower, he looks a little bit interesting. He won the Fayette last time out for Brad Cox. Um I will, I'll, I'll jump the gun a little bit and say that if Rich Strike wins this, no, he's not the three-year-old champion. That's still epicenter, though I think maybe he will get some votes if he does win this. Would be his second grade one year, of the, uh, grade one winner of the year. But he's only one for eight on the year, Derby being the only win. So he would be two for nine. That, that's not championship material to me. But, uh, you know, he's kind of a fan favorite. And uh, trainer Eric Reed found a soft spot for him for 750 grand. Can you believe we're actually going to see Rich Strike as the favorite? In a stakes race, that's that's unbelievable. Yes. Who would have thought it when he won the Kentucky Derby like that? Um, he ran really well in the Breeders' Cup Classic. He was beaten three lengths by Olympio. He was beaten two and a half lengths by Tapa in finishing fourth. And he might, I say might, he might not have had the greatest trip in the Breeders' Cup Classic. We don't know that because for some weird reason, and this is another case of thoroughbred racing dysfunctionality. You can get a head-on replay of a $3,500 claiming race with no problem. Good luck finding a head-on replay of the $6 million Breeders' Cup Classic, the richest horse race in America. It's not out there. According to Eric Reed, when Epicenter was injured on the backstretch of the Breeders' Cup Classic, it impeded Rich Strike. All we have to go on, since we can't see it on the pan shot, either the track feed or NBC coverage, and we don't have a head-on replay, the footnotes, the Equibase footnotes, do say that Rich Strike was carried out on the backstretch by Epicenter. How far was that? Was he carried out past the middle of the track? Who knows? We don't know. But even the race that he ran in the Breeders' Cup Classic, uh, regardless of what happened to him on the backstretch, was good enough, I think, to beat West Willpower or Folsom, both trained by Brad Cox, and the Clark. So it's going to be fun to, to see Rich Strike uh, run as actually the post-time favorite, which he's sure to be so. What what price do you think he's going to go off at, Randy? And what price do you think West Will Power with Sires aboard is going to go off at? Because I think they're going to be a little bit closer than we might give them credit for, just yeah, because West of Will- the Brad Cox thing. Zoom. Yes, I would agree. Brad Cox, deservedly, uh, his horses are bet pretty aggressively, and West Will Power comes off of strong buyer speed figure performance, an open lengths win in his last start. Uh, but he did get away with an incredibly soft pace in that race. That that's and it, Who knows? He might get away with that again. We'll have to see exactly how the, the pace scenario shapes up when the horses are actually entered for the Clark and see who all goes in. Uh, but 
yeah, I mean, he's going to be a strong second choice right now. I would say maybe uh, not looking at the size of the field, maybe two to one for Rich Strike and three to one for Wes Willpower. Uh, he's definitely Wes Willpower, the horse that Rich Strike, I think, has to be the most concerned about it, or at least his connections do. Well, he gets the, yeah, he gets the outside draw. He's actually seven of seven in here with speed to the outside of Rich Strike. So, I mean, basically, West Will Power is the speed of the speed in here. So it'll be interesting to see if Sonny Leon lets Rick Strike do his thing or if he sends him forward. Well, Richard Migliore, a retired rider that I have a lot of respect for, he made some news. He came out and blasted the Naira stewards after Trevor McCarthy was injured last Friday in a spill at Aqueduct. And what happened was a jockey by the name of Jalen Samuel came out on his horse uh, started a chain reaction. Uh, Trevor McCarthy went down. He broke his pelvis and his collarbone. And what Migliori had to say was that this is typical of what's going on at Naira, that the jockeys have become kind of just cowboys out there running all over the place, not having any regard for, you know, what paths they're in, who they cut off, uh, whether they're in, impeding someone else or putting them in danger or whatnot. He blamed the stewards saying that this happens time and time again. And Arad Ortiz is somebody that everybody brings up as the number one offender for this. And he's pretty much the number one jockey in the country saying they don't do anything about it. The stewards just look the other way. So the riders have become used to riding recklessly. And, you know, he went back to, and he also blasted the stewards for giving Samuel only seven days for his, uh, his actions in there. He called that absurd, that he suggested that uh, a rider, if they injure someone else, their suspension should be as long as the time the rider is out of action. It should mirror that. So if uh, Trevor McCarthy is going to miss two months, he said Jalen Samuel should have got a two-month suspension. Um, I really admire him for speaking up, and there's definitely something to this. I mean, New York racing right now has become like a rodeo out there. And, you know, do we need someone to get more seriously injured, even more so than Trevor McCarthy did? And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the stewards are supposed to be in charge. And his take is they're not in charge at all. They're just not paying any attention. And it's dangerous, Randy. Yeah, but, but I mean, I, you know, you and I see it and, and we can blow the trumpet all we want. I can say that uh, Sonny Leon got 15 days for trying to elbow Tyler Gaffleone out of the saddle at Churchill Downs. and I thought he should have gotten three months instead of uh, effectively three weeks. Uh, we can talk about Irad Ortiz. We can talk about Paco Lopez, you know, all we want. But it really, it really has teeth when someone who has been there, been in the saddle in New York and been a jockey like Richie Migliori or like my buddy Jerry Bailey or Zoe, uh, who's act, you know, who actually can speak with a little more authority on that situation. So, Zoe, what's, what's your take on it? It's just a little bit more lax than it used to be. And I actually spoke to Mig as well. And, you know, we're both of the opinion Everyone is talking about Cordero and comparing him with Irad Ortiz. But if Cordero had continued to do what Irad is doing, he would be stood down for an awful long time. I can remember going into the steward's room up for a minor infraction and, and feeling actually worried. These guys go in nowadays and it's like, oh, well, maybe I'll get the weekend off or maybe I'll just pay a fine. I can pay my way out of it. There's, there's not enough of enforcement into the fines that that go behind it. And basically, I can understand people wanting to ride Irad Ortiz. You want the best fighter in the room to fight for you. And he is the best fighter, the best jockey. He takes chances. He gets away with it. 
And that's why Todd Pletcher rides him. That's why everybody wants him on the horse because they know that he's going to try his best to win the race no matter what. It's just the question of what is the no matter what? There has to be a line that needs to be drawn and it needs to be drawn sooner rather than later before something awful happens. Zoe, how much of this stuff went on when you were riding? I mean, it, it goes on every day and it's always gone on. But I think, I think it's all stemmed from the New York herding thing that was going on. And basically it's come from that because in any other jurisdiction that I've ever ridden in, like mainly Chicago, Herding is not allowed. I can remember losing a race, being taken out 10 paths and losing by a head. Now, I didn't know at the time. I was an apprentice and I went in there like, hey, you got a cool foul on that. I'm like, well, I lost. They're like, yeah, but you were in the middle of the racetrack. So I did cool foul and it got overturned. Now, in New York for years, herding has been allowed. And I honestly believe that it's all stemmed from that. Oh, you get away with this? Oh, well, let's just push it a little further. Let's just push a little further. And they've pushed the envelope enough and the envelope needs to stop. There needs to be a hard wall where that envelope cannot be pushed anymore. Okay, if you want to learn more about Richard McGlory had to say, why don't you look at the, uh, what would be Tuesday's TDN, where I have a story in there. Some very strong words from Richard McGlory and uh, people in horse racing don't speak up enough, so we commend him for that. The TDN Rises Room is brought to you by XBTV. The XBTV Work of the Week is defunded. Seen going here solo in 59 and 1. He was the fastest of 32 works. His last win came in the grade one awesome again and looks like, according to Hall of Famer Bob Baffert, that he will go forward in the grade three native diver on Sunday at Del Mar. All the thrills. Fraction of the Bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point Thoroughbred partnership can vault you into a world of instant camaraderie among people surrounding high-class horses and stakes action for a fraction of the cost. Learn more at westpointtb.com. West Point as well had some pictures on their Twitter page of a Prosper, the good-looking City of Light cult out of Anchorage who sold for $1.7 million as a yearing Yearling, he's caring up for his first start for Familiar Connections, trained by John Sadler and owned by a partnership that includes West Point and Woodford Racing. Is this their next superstar? Is it? Is it? We shall find out. Hey, this week's Remy cartoon is in and it's a good one. It has a sign. Horses are coming on the track and it says the day after Thanksgiving and an announcer is announcing the overweights. Every horse in the race is overweight after, of course, feasting on turkey dinner on uh, Thanksgiving. So anyways, that's this week's show. I want to thank you, everybody, for listening and everybody watching. I want to thank Randy Moss, Zoe Cadman, Ed Martin, the Green Group Guest of the Week, our producer, Patty Wolf, our associate producer, Katie Petruniak, our editors, Anthony LaRocca and Aaliyah LaRocca. I'm Bill Finley. We'll talk to you next week here on the TDN Writers Room.